So today we're actually going to take a little bit of a one-week break from the sermon series that we were in. We've been looking at these shorter books of the New Testament, sort of giving them their due, the time that they deserve. Uh, and so we've been looking at those, but we're going to pause for this week. We'll pick up with that la- uh, next week. We'll sort of continue with that next week. But with it being the International Day of Prayer for the Persecuted Church, I figured, well, you know, the sermon ought to tie in awfully well with that. And so, you know, let's not have it be a day where just sort of certain parts of the service or what we're doing afterwards ties in with the persecuted church. But why not have the message as well tie in with that? And so that's what I really wanted to preach on is the matter of persecution and sort of what ought our response response to be in regard to persecution in the persecuted church and how are we to respond to this and help our brothers and sisters in Christ who are experiencing that. And so we're going to look at at quite a number of scriptures here and, and what the Bible says about persecution and how we are to respond to it. But before we even get there, I sort of want to address sort of the state of persecution in our world today because I think it can be easy here sort of sheltered in the U.S. where we have our great range of freedoms to sort of lose sight of what things are really like for many who are part of the body of Christ in other parts of the world and the reality that every day they face awfully great risk just for being a follower of Jesus Christ. They face the threat of, uh, of persecution uh, in all sorts of ways, being beaten, thrown in prison, tortured, death. Uh, being shunned even just sort of relationally by their families and friends. Uh, They face all sorts of of great risk just by the very fact that they call Christ their Lord. And the reality is we're sort of uh, sheltered from that in a great way here in the U.S. And we can sort of lose sight of the fact that persecution is, is this very significant reality for many all over the face of the earth. And so I want to sort of look at some statistics that sort of shed a little bit of light on the problem of persecution and show just sort of how widespread it is. Uh, First of all, and these aren't like statistics that I'm just sort of coming up with myself. These are from reputable sources uh, that do all of their research on persecution and whatnot. These are all very good statistics. Uh, Not that you can always nail down exact precise numbers from all sorts of different countries where maybe things aren't uh, statistically, you know, uh, tracked as well. But these are as good of an estimate as you could get by very professional uh, sort of sources. These are the stats on persecution. And for starters, uh, about a third, again, this is somewhat of an estimate, but it's sort of the best estimate you can come up with, probably around a third of the world's population faces some degree of persecution for their faith. Uh, And this isn't speaking just of Christians, but anyone, whatever their faith is, about a third of the world faces some degree. So we could be talking about sort of more mild forms of persecution, uh, but they are not 100% totally free to practice their faith, and there is some degree of persecution. And that's a third of the world. So this isn't just sort of like some small little place way off on the other side of the globe, and it's just a few people who face persecution. No, this is a significant percentage of the global population. And if we even look at sort of maybe setting aside very mild persecution, if we look at sort of more significant persecution, the reality is that 80% of the people who face some degree of significant persecution in the world are Christian, which is somewhat startling just if you sort of look at statistically, well, about a third of the world's population identifies as Christian, some sort of Christian, um, whether you're talking Catholic, Protestant, right, all the different denominations. About a third of the world's population identifies as Christian. Probably a little less, maybe it's 31, 32%, but right around a third. So you'd sort of expect, well, you know, if you, know, you have 
uh, this group of people who are persecuted for their faith, what percentage of them are Christians. You might expect somewhere around, you know, what Christians make up for the global population, about a third. And yet very clearly Christians are being intentionally targeted for persecution because that statistic is actually 80%. So if you look at those who face this significant degree of persecution, it's not the one-third Christian as you'd expect, but in fact it's actually 80% of those who face significant persecution are Christians. Right, so this is very much a global issue, but it's also very much specifically persecution for one's faith, very much a Christian issue, uh, and Christians are very much being singled out and targeted for their faith and being persecuted as a result. Now, I want to read this quote. This is according to some research, again, well-conducted research by the Church of England. Um, and this is sort of looking at persecution. This was some of their findings and their conclusion, right? And I'm quoting here from this, this report. It says, evidence shows not only the geographic spread of anti-Christian persecution, right? So it's, it's spreading all across the globe, but not only that, it says, but also it's increasing severity. So even where it's already, it was already present, it's not just growing geographically, spreading to new regions, but it's becoming more intense, more severe. And then it goes on, in some regions, the level and nature of persecution is arguably coming close to meeting the international definition of genocide according to that adopted by the UN. Right, so even according to uh, international definitions for what constitutes genocide, in some parts of the world where persecution is particularly heavy and severe, it's sort of teetering on the edge of might it even qualify as genocide based upon international definitions. Right? This is how, how much persecution is spreading, again, not just spatially all across the globe in many places, but it's becoming more and more intense, more and more severe. Right? Here's some more statistics about persecution. In the top 50 countries alone, and top 50 meaning top 50 worst countries for persecution, uh, so just looking at those 50 countries, not looking at the whole world, everything, right? Just looking at the top 50 countries alone where Christians are persecuted, 245 million Christians, right? So that's one in nine in the world, right? If you think of the total right, world population of Christians, those who identify as Christians, this is one in nine. And again, this isn't looking at every country. It's just looking at the top five, uh, top 50, that is, countries, right? 245 million Christians face high levels of persecution. We're not talking sort of moderate or mild types of persecution. We're talking very significant, high levels of persecution. And this isn't something that's just sort of on the fringes of the church, just in one or two places here or there. No, this is more than 10% of, of Christians in the world who face, again, just looking at these top 50 countries, who face high levels of persecution. It's not some sort of small issue in the world today. It's, it's awfully significant and it's growing. Right, if we look at that number, 245 million Christians in those top 50 countries who face high levels of persecution, that's actually up 14% as compared to the prior year. That's an awfully great percentage increase for just one year. Right, again, showing the rise of persecution, that it is um, certainly a growing issue and becoming uh, more widespread, more severe. Uh, another significant statistic uh, is this as well. Um, 
11 countries now score in the extreme level of persecution. So there are all these different criteria to meet different levels of persecution, extreme, very high, high, and so forth and so on, going, going on down the spectrum. Um, five years ago, only one country met the criteria for extreme persecution of Christians, and that was North Korea. Now you're talking just five years later, looking at today, right? You think five years, not a huge span of time, and yet now 11 countries meet the criteria. Again, showing just how much this is spreading, uh, not just over the globe, but also becoming more intense, more severe. Um, another significant statistic, too, in the top 50 countries, again, not looking at the whole world, but the top 50 worst countries for persecution of Christians, 4,136 Christians were killed for their faith over the last year, and that's over 11 a day. Uh, and this is really, whenever you're going for statistics like this, this is very much a low ball. These are sort of the figures that you know 100% this person was killed as a result of their faith. Often in a lot of countries, maybe reports reporting on these things, it's not so uh, well done. Um, it could be happening out in a remote village, and it never shows up on the statistics. But there are, so this is without a doubt a low ball number, but sort of you can say for sure at least 4,100, 4,136 Christians were killed for their faith in the last year. So even just today, if today's an average day, there are going to be 11 of our brothers or sisters in Christ who will die for their faith. And that's just an average day, right, uh, for the church across the globe. And so persecution, it's not something that's sort of just a minor issue. It only happens in that one bad country way over there or a couple places. This is really a growing problem. It's not something that happened only long ago for the early church, you know, in the days of Nero and so forth, Roman Empire. Oh, it happened back then, but now, you know, uh, things are different and so forth. No, we very much live in a day and age where persecution is sort of rampant. Christians all over the face of the earth are, are facing it, and not just mild forms of it, but in fact even very intense and severe forms uh, of persecution. And it's on the rise. It's growing. It's growing throughout the world. I'd even say we see it beginning bit by bit more and more even in our country as well. So I'd say more and more it's not just becoming something way over, you know, on the other side of the earth and, and we're sort of sheltered from that. I'm not saying that persecution's oh so terrible and tough here, but I'd say even more you start to see the stories in the news uh, of somebody, you know, these are common stories, you know, someone who bakes cakes for weddings and they won't do one with sort of gay pride all over it and, and to support homosexual marriage and so forth. And they're just saying, you know, I, I just object to making that cake. I'm not trying to be difficult and so forth, but it's not in line with my faith. And then these people wind up being taken to court. They lose their business. They pay, have to pay out hundreds of thousands of dollars in damage damages and so forth. And financially speaking, their lives are sort of ruined. Spiritually speaking, of course, their lives are not. But from a financial perspective and their jobs and their livelihood, it's all taken away from them. And for what? Because they believe in, in God, they believe in Christ, and they follow what, what, of course, their Lord, their Savior, the one true God says about what's right and wrong. And so we're seeing it more and more even in this country where it's not just we're sort of belittled and mocked a little bit for our faith. But even still, freedom of religion is being infringed upon more and more and more. And I would say we're going to see it coming a little bit more and more in an ever-increasing way over the next years and decades and so forth. So I wouldn't even have the mindset of we're totally sheltered from that. It's never going to be an issue here, right? Things are different. I'd say, no, you know, we could hope that that's the case. But 
I think the trend is, is quite the opposite and it's only going to grow here. But the point is, bottom line, persecution is an issue. It is a major issue uh, all across the globe. And so it's worth saying, you know, here it's International Day of Prayer for the Persecuted Church. We want to address this, take a look at it, and say, well, what does the Bible say about the matter of persecution? We sort of see, we've laid the groundwork. Uh, this is still a problem in our world today. And now what does the Bible say about it? How do we respond to persecution? How are we to view it? And I want to first look at the Gospel of John, and you can certainly flip there and read with me if you would like. Uh, John chapter 15, verses 18 through 21. And it's Jesus speaking here, and he's talking to his disciples, and here's what he says. He says, if the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belonged to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. Remember what I told you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. If they obeyed my teaching, they will obey yours also. They will treat you this way because of my name, for they do not know the one who sent me. Right? To put it simply, Jesus is saying here to the disciples, and not just sort of to the disciples, right, the 12 or 11 if you take Judas out of the equation, right, uh, but this is said to all of his followers, of course, or it certainly applies to us as well, right, he's basically saying, don't be surprised if the world hates you, right, you're different from the world. He says, I've chosen you out of the world, right? If you were just like the world, you know, happy to indulge in sin, doing thing, the, things the world's way, well, the world would love you and welcome you as its own, welcome you with open arms, right? But you're not of the world. I've chosen you out of the world. And they hated me. And so don't be surprised if you now are my followers that they're going to hate you and they'll treat you poorly and they'll persecute you and do terrible things to you. He, he says, in effect, don't be shocked by it. I'm sort of laying it out for you up front before, of course, Christ then heads to the cross and, and, and rises from the dead and then ascends to the Father. And then the disciples, of course, they're sent out into the, the whole world, right, the whole Roman world and even elsewhere outside of the Roman world even uh, as well to go and preach the truth of the gospel. He's basically saying... I'm kind of giving you a heads up of what you should expect and what's to come. And this isn't, again, just for them, but all who follow Christ. Don't be surprised if people don't like you. They don't like you. They don't like what you stand for, what you're all about, because you're different than them, right? The world loves the world and the things of the world, and you're not of the world. I've chosen you out of it. If they hated me and they, they treated me poorly, they're going to do the same to you, my followers. So don't be surprised by it. And I think at times we can sort of be shocked by persecution because we sort of grew up or, or probably for some of us at least grew up in it. I'm a little bit younger, so maybe even in my day and age as a kid, the church's position in culture was already changing. But I can think of even just for my parents, they grew up in a world that's, or in a country, I should say, that's fundamentally different than the country we live in now. My parents grew up and they, when they went to public school, they said the Lord's Prayer in public school. Nowadays, you almost couldn't fathom doing that. It would seem so shocking, and yet that's what they did. The church sort of held this prized position in society and culture, and a lot of us sort of still remember that day, and so now as things sort of start to change, we're sort of shocked by the reality of the church now being marginalized, sort of pushed on the fringes of society, and we're treated like the weird people who believe all these terrible things, and they're judgmental, and they hate, and so forth and so on. Not that we're about all of that. 
about were about love and, and were not judgmental, of course. Uh, but nonetheless, that's sort of the way we're depicted. Right? And so I think as we see things changing, as we are confront, confronted with persecution, because we sort of have this memory of a different day and age, it somewhat surprises us. But I would say that day and age of, the world, of, of sort of the church holding a prized uh, position in the culture and in society, that was sort of what was unusual. But the norm for the church and for Christians is for the world not to like us, for us to be treated poorly, for us to be hated, for us to be persecuted. And that's what Jesus is saying here. That's the norm. Expect people not to like you and to treat you poorly. And it's reiterated in many places in Scripture. I'll read one other one. This is 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12. And Paul writes here to Timothy, and he says, In fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Basically, expect it. If you want to follow Christ, if you want to believe in him and live your life in service to him, man, expect it, right? You're going to be persecuted. That's what you should expect. It's almost like if that doesn't take place, you're sort of the exception to the rule. The norm is expect it to take place. And so I think as we think of persecution and the persecuted church, the first thing I want to realize is it shouldn't be a surprise to us. Not that, that we want to sort of blow it off and say it's no big deal, but we shouldn't be shocked by it. We should sort of have the response of, you know, that's what we expect, right? We're going to be different from the world. We're going to live in a different way. They're not going to like that, and we're going to be treated poorly, and it shouldn't shock us. So that's sort of, I'd say that's sort of a first way in which we ought to respond to persecution is to say, hey, we knew it was going to come. No surprise. But then how else are we to view it? And I want to look at a couple passages here, and we'll look first at James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4. And here James writes and says, Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. Right? To put it simply, what is James saying? He's saying, let me tell you how you should view trials. And trials, there's certainly a range of what could be a sort of trial, but persecution is one type of trial that one can face. And so as we think of persecution and that sort of trial, how are we to view it? What does James have to say to us here? And I think our, our normal response would be, well, who likes trials? I, you know, I don't like trials. I like things nice and easy, you know, a nice path of least resistance. That sounds nice and fun and easy. I like things comfortable. You know, our, our natural response to trials would be not to be just overjoyed, jumping for joy. Yes, another time of trial. I love it. Thank you, Lord. And yet that's pretty much what James says our response should be. He says, basically, we're to consider it, count it pure joy right, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds. And why? He says, so when you face a trial, persecution certainly being one of the types of trials we can face, we should actually rejoice in it. We shouldn't say, oh, this is some awful, terrible thing. There is an aspect of it that is awful and terrible, to be sure. But at the same time, we should say, thank you, Lord, for this. It's a gift. And why? Because ultimately what James says is basically it produces perseverance and mature Christian character. That God uses times of trial, uh, including persecution, to grow us in the faith, to cause us to draw nearer to him, to mature us in the faith. And we ought to rejoice in that fact. Not that we love being treated poorly and, and we just sort of delight in that, but we delight in the fact that when that comes upon us, God uses that to grow us, mature us in the faith, to bring about sanctification in our lives. And we ought to rejoice over that reality. And so I think that's sort of a, a, a sort of counterintuitive way of viewing 
trials and persecution. Our natural response is to sort of object to, to, to persecution, and we should object to it, of course, but to sort of not want it and say it's this terrible thing and it's awful and sort of to hate it. And it is a terrible thing and it is awful and we should oppose it, but when it happens in our lives, there's also still a sense of I can rejoice in it because I know God will use it in a great way in my life. And so we ought to view it that way. Uh, Paul speaks of this as well in Philippians chapter 1 verse 29 and I want to read it for us he says for it has been granted to you and even the word here for granted it's it's the same root that, that we get the word grace from and really a better translation granted sort of gets at this but I think it's better to translate it a little more clearly is something along the lines of graciously given or sort of graciously given as as a gift right for it has been graciously given as a gift to you on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, right? Certainly it's a gracious gift from the Lord to be given faith in Christ and receive life in him, but it's not only a gracious gift to, to believe in him, but it's also a gracious gift from the Lord, as he says, also to suffer for him, right? And again, I think sort of naturally our, our thought would be, I don't want to suffer. I don't think suffering is this great, wonderful gift that I'm just excited to get. You know, thank you for that suffering. That's so wonderful. That's probably not the way we would normally think. And yet that's what Paul says, right? It, is a, right? it has been granted to you or graciously given to you on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him. And I'd say what Paul has in mind here, yes, he certainly, and he actually speaks of this elsewhere, could have in view here that, you know, when we face difficult times and when we suffer for Christ and when we're persecuted, God can certainly use that to bring about spiritual growth in our lives. And in that sense, yes, we should view it as a, as a gracious gift from the Lord. Uh, that certainly could be the case, but I don't think that that's specifically what Paul has in mind. I think what he has in mind is more that he would consider it, and, and of course then he's saying the Philippian church, of course, also got to consider it this way, that he would consider it a true great joy and honor to suffer for the one who suffered for him, right? Just as Christ suffered immeasurably for us, for Paul, for all who trust in him, Paul's view is, I consider it a true honor and joy to suffer for you, my Lord, my Savior, who suffered for me and showed your love for me in that way, Lord Jesus. And I just want to encounter a joy to suffer for you and demonstrate my love for you, Lord Jesus, and my devotion and my dedication to you and suffering for you and enduring persecution and persevering through that is a way that I can show my love and devotion to you and I count it a great honor and joy to be able to do so for you, Lord Jesus. I'd say that's Paul's mindset. That's his attitude. And he's saying, hey, Philippians, you ought to have that mindset as well. You ought to view it as this gracious gift from God to be able to not just believe in him, but also to suffer for him, to have that, that honor of suffering for Christ and showing your love and devotion to him. And I would say we also ought to have that mindset that even as persecution comes, right, as hardship comes, as, as suffering comes on behalf of Christ, as we're persecuted because of him, our mindset should be not this is some awful thing that I have to endure because of my faith in Christ. There is truth to that, but also, no, I also count it just a great honor and joy to suffer for the one who is willing to suffer for me and to show my dedication and devotion and love for the Lord, the one who suffered for me.
Right? And so I'd say that's how we ought to view persecution. Not just there's truth, of course, it is this terrible, awful thing, but it's also something in which we can rejoice and delight. As crazy as that might, that might seem, it is true, and we ought to have that mindset that it's actually, in many ways, a joy as God uses it to bring spiritual growth in our lives, and also it's just sort of an honor and joy to suffer for Christ who suffered for us. But I want to take another look at sort of a further response, how we should respond to persecution. And I want to look at Romans here, chapter 12, verses 14 and 15. And here's what Paul says. He says, bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. And then he goes on, rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. And I want to sort of treat those two verses separately. We'll look at the first one here. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Right? This should be our response as we undergo persecution. And not that we're primarily the ones in the global church who are going to face persecution. But nonetheless, we still ought to prepare ourselves for it and say, you know, what, are our response, what should our response be to persecution? Right? Certainly, we shouldn't be surprised by it, as we talked about. Uh, we should count it a joy. Right? God will use it to bring spiritual growth in our lives. And it's also just an honor to suffer for Christ who suffered for us. But also, how, how else are we to respond to it, particularly? particularly how we respond to those who persecute us for our faith. And Paul basically says here, don't have the response of, of cursing them and hating them and wanting the worst for them. Oh, they're my enemy and I just hate them and so forth. No, he says that's not the response you should have. But he says, bless those who persecute you, right? We ought to be blessing those who persecute us, loving them, caring for our enemies, praying for them. We should still have that positive disposition and loving disposition even to those who are enemies who are doing us harm, who are persecuting us. We ought to be blessing them rather than cursing them. So that's one of the ways we are to respond to persecution. But I also want to read the, the second verse here, verse 15, and Paul says, Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Right? There's the sense of sort of empathy within the body of Christ is sort of one part of it, one member of it experiences something, right, that would cause weeping, suffers in some way, and weeping is the result. Well, we're to empathize with that person and feel their pain and weep with them. Or maybe there's something that results in joy, some wondrous and good thing happens to somebody, one member of the body of Christ, and how are we, the rest of the body of Christ, to respond? Well, again, sort of rejoicing with them. Sort of whatever happens to them, we sort of feel it with them. And if something great happened and they're rejoicing, then we ought to be co-rejoicing with them. And Paul actually talks about this a little bit more in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 26. And this is particularly relevant for persecution as we talk about people, our brothers and sisters in Christ, maybe even in far-off places, uh, who are suffering for their faith. Well, what does that mean for us? It means that we ought to be feeling their pain, suffering with them, co-suffering. Whatever happens to them, we feel it like it's happening to us because we're all part of, part of one body. And so we ought to be co-suffering with them. And that's what Paul talks about here in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 26. Here he's talking most specifically about the actual human body, but now he's using that as a metaphor for the body of Christ and saying that they operate in the same way. So here he's sort of speaking of both. So if one part suffers, he says, again, talking about either the human body, it's true for the human body, but also true for the body of Christ. If one part suffers, every part suffers with it. 
Right, you know, if you have some, the flu, some upper respiratory infection, it's not like just that part of your body is going to feel it and suffer, right? You could have a, a fever and it affects your whole body, you get a headache, maybe you got aches and pains and joints and muscles, all, all sorts of symptoms, right? And the whole body feels it, even if locally the infection is really in one specific place. Right? And, and in the same way, he's saying just as the body operates that way, even if one part is directly suffering, the whole body sort of suffers with it and feels that pain in a sense. Right? In the same way, right, the church operates very much the same way, where if one member suffers, right, we're all united together as one family of faith in Christ. And so when one part of the body of Christ suffers, one member of it, one person who's a follower of Christ suffers, right, in fact, the whole body suffers. There ought to be sort of that empathy, feeling another person's pain, and sort of as one person suffers, we all suffer with that person. Rather than sort of saying, well, I feel bad for you, that's too bad, but man, not my problem, no big deal to me. But no, we ought to be feeling their pain and suffering with them. And he says sort of on the flip side, if one part is honored, every part rejoices with it. So if bad happens to one part, well, then we sort of all feel that pain and suffer with that person as, as a whole body. But also if, if a great thing happens to one part, one member of the body of Christ, well, then we all sort of share in that and rejoice in it. Right? We rejoice with that one part in that good thing. And so as this relates to persecution, I think it can be all too easy to being sheltered from it, sort of distance ourselves from it. We sort of feel bad for our brothers and sisters in Christ who are in some far off place. They're in China, you know, or in Iran or Nigeria. You know, those are some of the places we talked about. We prayed for some of those people. Um, but it's sort of way far off. And we sort of yeah, you know, we feel bad for them and we wish that weren't the case and, and we pray for them and it can be all too easy to have that mindset, but sort of, that's it. It's sort of, it's still their problem way over there. I have enough of my own problems that I have to deal with here. I have a busy life. I'm not saying that we sort of use these actual words, but in a sense, that can be what goes on in our hearts where, you know, yeah, we care about them, we want the best for them, but we're too busy with our own stuff to really have our hearts truly go out to them, to really sort of co-suffer with them, to feel their pain, uh, and really be what the body of Christ is meant to be, where and when one part suffers, the whole part suffers. I think all too often we can distance ourselves from that and not really fully empathize with our brothers and sisters in Christ the way we're called to, the way we ought to. And sort of continuing on with, with that idea of when one part suffers, every part suffers, right? Sort of Hebrews chapter 13, verse 3, sort of further addresses that and, and specifically talks about imprisonment, particularly imprisonment for Christ. And I want to read it for us here. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 3. It says, remember those in prison. And the idea here is not like, you know, you know a fellow believer who, you know, they were just tempted and they stole something and now they're in prison. That's not the idea of what's going on here with remember those who are in prison. The idea is those who are in prison who've done nothing wrong. Not that we shouldn't care for those people. We should still care for those people. But what clearly is going on here is it's speaking of those who are in prison who've done nothing wrong. All they're guilty of, so to speak, is just following Christ. And because they're faithful to the Lord, faithful to Christ, believe in him, now they're in prison. Now they're in chains. And what does the author of Hebrews here say? Well, he says, remember those in prison. But he goes on a little further. He says, remember those in prison as though you were in prison with them. Again, sort of that empathizing with them. It's sort of when this one part suffers, it's sort of like, it's almost like I'm in their shoes and I'm feeling their pain along with them. 
and remembering them. And here certainly remembering is not just in the sense of recalling it, right, having it sort of call to mind what's going on, but it's more than that. It's not just, oh, I remember intellectually in my head and my brain, oh yeah, there is that person in prison. But it has sort of uh, action involved in the sense of the word here for remember. It's not just recall it and, and call it to mind, but then out of that recollection than to act and do something. So remember those in prison is, yes, remember them, but now care for them as you're able to, to be motivated to action and care for them and do it as though you were right there with them in prison, right? And then he goes on, right? Remember those in prison as though you were in prison with them and the mistreated as though you yourselves were suffering bodily, right? Just like you're feeling their pain, you're suffering bodily just as they are, right? Again, sort of that co-suffering with your brothers and sisters in Christ and still remembering them and caring for them. And related to this, uh, sort of not just calling it to mind, but really having it motivate you to action, I want to read 1 John chapter 3, verse 18. And John writes here and says, Dear children, let us not love with words or speech, but with actions and in truth, right? The idea here is words and speech, they're good and fine and well, but you shouldn't be loving with only words and speech. It's just sort of a matter of speech, but you know, your heart or supposed love never really goes further than that. True love will always result in action. It won't just be the words and the speech. That's all good and it should be present, but ultimately if you really love someone, you're going to be motivated to act in a loving way on their behalf, right? And as we were talking about in Hebrews, chapter 13, the idea of remembering here isn't just sort of remembering those who are mistreated, remembering those who are in prison for their faith, and sort of just don't forget about them in your mind, but this, in view, a, and be motivated to act on their behalf, right? If you're really going to co-suffer, in a sense, as we sort of talked about here, with your brothers and sisters in Christ as they're persecuted for their faith, as they're thrown in prison, as they're uh, abused, mistreated, if you're really going to sort of feel their pain, suffer alongside of them, and love them as you should a brother and sister in Christ, then it must motivate you to act on their behalf, right? That is what will naturally happen if you're really feeling their pain, suffering along with them, and really have true love for them as a brother or sister in Christ, right? The natural result will be not just words or speech of, oh, I care about you, I hope it goes well for you, but you'll be motivated to act on their behalf. And so this is where I really want to move into application and say, well, you know, what are we to do? If we're to in love, if we really feel the pain of our persecuted brothers and sisters in Christ, and they're everywhere all over the face of the earth. If we're really going to feel their pain, and if we're really going to love them in a true way that ought to motivate us to action, well, then the question is, well, how are we to act? I think we can sort of at times want to act. We really love them. We sort of might have that sort of co-suffering mindset, but what do I do about it? You know, I'm just little old me here in the U.S., and they're way off in some other place, and how do I help them in their situation? What can I really do? And this is where I really want to focus on our application, say, looking at the persecuted church today, really emphasizing that. What are we to do as we co-suffer with them, as we love them and, and are motivated to action? How can we truly act on their behalf. And I'd say the first thing that we can do, and we can certainly always do, is just pray for them, right? And there's more that we can do, and we'll talk about that, but pray for them. And I think all too often, you know, we just, we fail to do that. It's something that ought to be easy to do, right? We can always just be lifting up people in prayer, but I think all too often we neglect prayer in our lives. It's probably one of the general weaknesses, I would say, of the American church. We're probably not the strongest prayers, and all too often we fail to lift up 
uh, our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ in prayer. And, and this is one of the things that in love we ought to be motivated to do, just to be lifting them up in prayer, right? Those who are in prison, those who are abused in all sorts of ways, praying, right, for their release if they're in prison, praying for the families of that imprisoned person. Maybe they're struggling to make ends meet. Undoubtedly, they're missing a loved one in this sort of an absence in family life, and, and they, they're certainly missing that dearly loved one. Pray for them, that God would be present with them, uh, seeing them through that time, providing for them. Right? We can be praying, in a sense, not just sort of for individuals, but we can be praying sort of big picture in, in various countries that, that the persecution uh, that Christians are feeling in that place, in that country, would be alleviated. Maybe it's through political powers, uh, you know, influencing what's going on. Often the U.S. at times, I think we're not great at this, but there are times, and you see it, where the, the U.S. has been pressured, people in power, to go in and alleviate some sort of uh, Christian suffering in some part of the country. I think of Pastor Andrew Brunson. We prayed for him. Maybe it was the last International Day of Prayer for the persecuted church. And eventually enough U.S. politicians got on board after Christians hounded them enough. Sadly, it takes that. Uh, but enough Christians sort of advocated for him and were pushing politically for, for him to be released. And suddenly when you get some politicians in the U.S. in power uh, who have a little clout and they can put pressure on, at that point, that, that situation, it was Turkey, put pressure on them threatens of, you know, maybe threatening economic sanctions or who knows what, and all of a sudden he's released, right? Uh, and so there are certainly things that we can do, right? We can be in prayer, of course, that God would work and bring about, whether it's the release of people in prison through maybe means like that that I just spoke of. Maybe God uses other means. It's just someone in power in that, that country, some judge who just sort of throws out any false charges against that person, and now they're free to go. Uh, whatever it might be, whoever might be in a position to uh, bring about change in those countries, just praying that God would bring about that change, that God would work in that country, work in the lives of people who have the power to change things and that the picture the picture of, of persecution going on in all sorts of countries over uh, the face of the earth would change that that persecution would be lessened and alleviated that the suffering of our brothers and sisters in Christ in those parts of the world would diminish over time right we ought to be praying generally again for the church but even specifically for specific people and it's something that's awfully easy for us to do yet all too often we neglect it uh, something else that we can do, a little more tangible in a sense, is we can help through financial aid and, and, and giving. Uh, oftentimes where there's persecution of the church, uh, the church is often marginalized. Probably the, the jobs that they work, they're not often allowed to hold jobs that might be better paying and so forth. Often they're lower in society. There's not a lot of financial resources at their disposal and then persecution hits right and a lot of the men who maybe are the main earners they wind up in prison or abused and maybe they're they're you know harmed physically and now they can't work in the the farms uh, you know on the farm as well right oftentimes very tangibly there are needs monetary financial needs um, and we can help with that. And you might think, well, you know, how do I give toward that end? I don't know individual people in these far-off countries. How do I give to help them? There are organizations that take care of that, that do help the persecuted church, uh, whether literally by financial help of individuals there, but they also help the persecuted church by advocating for the persecuted church as well, political advocacy 
advocacy and so forth. And we can help by giving financially to those organizations. Open Doors is certainly a ministry that has a heart for the persecuted church and is doing a lot to help them. Uh, Samaritan's Purse does a lot of different things, but one of the things they do is help the persecuted church. There's a whole host of organizations. And so I think sometimes we can sort of feel helpless. How are we to help? Yet there are loads of organizations that sort of tackle this problem, that seek to alleviate the suffering of the persecuted church, and we can be financially giving toward that end. Uh, another thing we can do is, is, is advocacy, right? Even just spreading the word. I think we still live in a world where for many people they think persecution is just a small thing. Yeah, it sort of happens here and there every now and then in some far off place, but it's not a major world issue. And just even getting the word out is helpful to our persecuted brothers and sisters in Christ. But oftentimes it takes more, and I, I talked about this a little bit with Pastor Andrew Brunson, I used his example, but oftentimes it takes a lot of sort of pushing, petitions, signing things, um, putting a lot of pressure on politicians to then bring about the change, right? There are people who are in positions to bring about effective change and help to alleviate persecution, but they're just not personally interested in it. But if enough of their voting members, right, of their constituents, right, if enough of them put pressure on them to deal with the matter, then sometimes it gets dealt with. But all too often we think, I'm just one person, what can I do? But if we all sort of join together and really advocate for the persecuted church, um, things happen and things can change. And so we ought to take that seriously uh, and really advocate for our brothers and sisters in Christ all over the world persecuted. Again, often political advocacy. So there is a lot that we can do, and I really want to challenge us to sort of co-suffer, as I talked about, with our persecuted brothers and sisters in Christ, to really feel their pain, suffer along with them as they suffer, uh, to really have a heart for them and love them and, and have that motivate us to action, the action of praying for them in their situation, the action of financially helping them and giving to organizations that help them, and also by advocating for them. So let's really be challenged to have a heart for our brothers and sisters who are persecuted and in love serve them and care for them in these ways as we're called to. Amen. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you for the global church. It can be easy to sort of hyper-focus on our little part of the global church, our little church here at New Hope Chapel or the church here in Westboro or Massachusetts or even our country and lose sight of the global church. And we're grateful for this global family of faith. And many of our brothers and sisters in Christ, they don't have the freedoms that we have to practice our faith, to live it out day after day. And they live out their faith daily under the threat of all sorts of persecution, Lord. And we just want to lift them up in prayer. Lord, that you would just be present with them every day, strengthening them in the face of such opposition, giving them a faithfulness, a perseverance, even as they're mistreated, thrown in prison, or worse, even with their lives on the line, Lord. May they just be faithful to you to the very end and be a powerful testimony to you. Lord, we pray that we, the church in more comfortable places, without so much persecution, that we would not lose sight of our persecuted brothers and sisters in Christ, that we would have a heart for them, that we would feel their pain, that we would weep when they weep, that we would mourn when they mourn, that we would feel their suffering, Lord, and having a heart and love for them that we would be motivated to act. Help us to pray for them faithfully, fervently, as we ought to. Help us to give of whatever resources we have, often financial, to help them, to care for them, to meet their needs. 
and help us to advocate for them as well. Often we think, what can I do? What change can I bring about? But often a lot of people advocating together can affect great change, Lord. And may we do that, Lord. May we take that seriously and advocate for our brothers and sisters day after day. And may you use it all, Lord, to alleviate the suffering of your people all over the face of the earth. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.